In recent years, students have come under fire from the media. Our generation, critics claim, is predisposed to echo chamber thinking, closed-mindedness and so-called cancel culture. Given that our cultural diet is fed by polarising social media algorithms and clickbait headlines, this is perhaps inevitable. Yet my experience of tutorials, seminars and pitching meetings assures me that students are more capable of constructive debate than ever. So, here at Discourse, we're setting the record straight. Every month, we'll be discussing controversial, topical stories with members of the academic community, no dissing allowed. Through candid, agreeable discussion, we'll shed light on the nuances of each argument. Who knows, we might even change minds in the process. Happy week 10, everyone, and welcome back to our third episode of Discourse by the Saint. As always, my guests and I will be discussing various pressing and hopefully provocative news issues, all while trying to stay amicable in the process. It's probably easier said than done at this stage of the semester, but then Sunak and Braverman have set such a low benchmark over the last week that I reckon we can at least surpass their efforts. This week, I'm joined by Will Finlater, third year modern history and IR student and viewpoint editor at The Saint. Hopefully, on the basis of these credentials, we're in for some interesting discussion today. So, Will, could you please kick things off with a controversial opinion? Yeah, my controversial opinion is that I think that tea... I mean, I, I don't think it should be that controversial, but is that tea is too expensive. I think it should be like a, a universal... The government should institute a universal cap of tea being worth pound fifty, and, like, you're not allowed to charge more than that. Great, and I think my addition to that would be that the hot water taps in the library are the best invention that has ever been thought of. <laughs> um, my other guest this week is Martina Kemiklite, third-year neuroscience student and logistics coordinator for women in computer science. What do you have for us this morning, Martina? My controversial opinion would be that bucket hats are a complete fashion of animation and they should be banned. They should be only, you know, worn by children. And on that note, <laughs> um, it's been quite the fortnight since our last episode. Events in Gaza are ongoing and continue to be as divisive and upsetting as ever. And I'd just like to reiterate that we won't be covering these events in our podcast and that listeners who are interested in hearing some informed commentary about them should look to the professionals over at Tortoise or The Economist. Um, closer to home, though, British politics have been causing their fair share of controversy. We've had the disastrous, albeit pretty unsurprising, COVID inquiry, the release of Nadine Dorsey's frankly surreal book, The Plot, uh, the King's Speech, and Will, I know you're keen to talk a bit about this, the AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park. Just before we dive into this story, which covers some pretty controversial views put forward by Elon Musk and Rishi Sunak, I'd like to reiterate that, as always, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the saint and should be taken in the spirit of student discussion and debate. I mean, the first thing to note is maybe just about the UK generally and our position, our, our, our position as hosting this. I mean, like, basically the whole idea is is that Rishi Sunak is trying to say, OK, well, this is... This is a massive coup. We're like really important when it comes to AI. Wow, look, all of these experts are coming over here and like basically hosting this big summit here. But I I think if anything, it just it just reeks of what we quite often reek of as a country, which is like desperation to be relevant. I think that it's it's not immediately geopolitically interesting or or not interesting or impactful rather. But it's just like a flashy subject, which a lot of people are talking about, especially in the press and in the tech world. It's this desperation 
to be seen as important rather than actually important and contributing to the big issues of the day. It raises this question when you've got Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk sitting there. Who is actually more powerful? Because you could say like, Actually, I, I, you could make, I think, a quite reasonable case that Elon Musk is, I mean, almost certainly going to have more impact on the way in which we live our lives, the direction that we're traveling in, and just sort of like like the changes that are going to result politically than I think Rishi Sunak is. He's like powerless, like um, he's, he's powerless within the British government, I think, to do anything. And then I think the British government's political capital is low and even then I think you could talk about like more broader long-term trends about our ability and desire to like stop and change the way in which these things like AI and um, AI develop and grow it certainly doesn't look like we're in a position to regulate it or sort of like set the direction of what it's going to look like in future years to look like. So I think there's there's a lot of st um, stuff there. It's a really interesting flashpoint moment for where we're going as a society and a world. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. I know you've really judged it as a disaster <laughs> in your uh, reflection on it, but I actually <clears throat> think it was interestingly more effective and successful than a lot of commentators thought it was going to be. Lots of people were imagining that Musk wasn't going to show up. They were thinking China weren't going to show up. I think there ended up being representatives from 27 countries there. Um, I know Biden didn't attend, um, but there were like several high-ranking members <coughs> of US Parliament who were there. Um, and actually, I think the fact that they've now decided to hold additional summits in South Korea and France just shows that it was, in a way, quite a good initiative from Sunak. Um, maybe I think it's more interesting reflection of where Sunak's interests and priorities lie. It seems as though he'd put a lot of thought um, and excitement into this rather than the more pressing domestic issues. Yeah, what you could also say there potentially is like, I mean, like, when a when a prime minister or a president tends to they tend to sort of orientate towards the like foreign pol policy the flashy the legacy projects i mean that this is clearly one of them i think it's it's a very interesting uh, conversation to have i feel like and it's interesting that um you know Richard Sunak was kind of leading the discussion there as well you have Richard Sunak which is you know former goldman sachs banker quite you know quite official and then we have you know Mr Musk who is known for his like provocative statements he's known for his uh, controversial opinions and sometimes even you know, controversial decisions as well. Uh, for example, from Jack Clark, from the co-founder of NAI startup called Anthropic, who was basically you know told Financial Times that you know there needs to be some some sort of like external referee to kind of test and um, establish those like you know AI regulations. I think a lot of interesting ideas about AI came out of the summit, but a lot of them hadn't really like they weren't that new I think a lot of them we had sort of heard before and actually I think the main thing that came out of the interview as you alluded to there uh, Will is also like this weird uh, changing landscape where I think people like Musk are effectively taking over our political leaders in terms of the influence that they have in society um, I think it was weird the pairing of Rishi Sunak and Musk um, that was this bizarre marketing strategy they did where the number 10 logo of the door morphed into the X logo for Twitter, um, which just seems so bizarre given that X is known for spreading misinformation. Uh, it just seems a really strange parallel to want to draw. Um, and I know, Will, you wanted to talk a bit about the dynamics of the interview itself. 
And just visually speaking, it was kind of funny to have this large musk figure on the right and then this rather small in stature Rishi Sunak who seemed to be almost like an excited schoolboy. He spent the first couple of minutes of the interview just listing all of Musk's achievements. Um, didn't push back on anything that Sunak said, include uh, anything that Musk said, including um, a statement that our jobs were effectively going to be made obsolete in the yeah. not so distant future. Which- what is often said about AI is, well, don't worry, like, look at look at what it currently is. It's based off these large language models, which are basically everything that's been said um, everything that's been said in a set of texts, we sort of like abstract it and and then like use that as the basis for like answering questions. And I mean, so it's not that threatening as it currently stands. I mean, these are some very interesting opinions. I uh, noticed that you mentioned the fact that yeah, Elon Musk uh, was one of the co-founders of OpenAI and then he kind of quit before, uh, well, he left OpenAI before it uh became a, a very big, big thing. And, you know, one could argue that the reason why, you know, for example, he is now so investing so much of his energy and time is because he's trying to, like, catch up to the OpenAI projects um, after, you know, his project XII, I think is what it's called, hasn't, you know, hasn't had the same success. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I've read that basically, but another reason could be like, that he is just trying to catch up to OpenAI. Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Um, But also, even within the interview itself, I thought uh, it was interesting that Musk himself alluded to uh, issues in the existing technology when he was talking about the potential for AI bots to be sort of friends to people and tutors. He was saying that quite often they just give very confidently incorrect answers at the moment. And he just sort of laughed this off. But actually, that's quite a fundamental issue and not one that's addressed uh, that easily or simply. Um, in the medical sector, I know that CRISPR technology owes a lot to AI. And that's looking really positive in terms of biotechnology and how we might be able to gene edit um, crops and also animals for food production in the future. So I think there's a balance here where, yeah, I definitely think that AI and particularly in the hands of someone like Musk, who is so ambitious and his his ambitions often seem quite misaligned with the earthly concerns of other people. Um, but I don't know whether it's uh, necessarily a good thing to look at AI as just a, a threat and something that needs to be, you know, just regulated as much as possible. I totally agree that with how, you know, scary or frustrating you know the uh, ai use could be especially when you don't know what's going on or like when it's used and i do feel that companies are using it more and more as you've said uh kind of you know we don't even notice where it's being used um and i read a very interesting fact just kind of coming back to ai you know producing a false information that chatbots it's been estimated that chatbots now invent information at least 3% of it, uh, of the time um and there's another problem kind of arising where you know chatbots are taking in the information from other AI-generated models. Uh, so, you know, there's, it kind of creates a whole loop of, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out, um, meaning that in the future we could um, face even more, even a bigger problem where there's just, you know, so much garbage information being generated because there's no actual human input. In terms of in terms of the incentives of these companies and, 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 and what these companies actually, like... Um, like like want to achieve i mean i I don't think it has any like i i I mean we're basically inventing these things as tools to be used for companies and when you've got someone like elon musk 
saying essentially that yes, this is going to be causing massive danger to people's lives. This is going to be basically fundamentally transformative to our economy in ways that we can't predict. I, I disagree with the fact that companies would implement AI whether or not it was beneficial to their business practices. I think that there's a lot and a lot of um, research and strategic um, analysis that's going into AI models at the moment. And I don't think any company in their right mind would implement a technology that might damage their no, business structure. I, I, I agree. I think the danger comes from like... Like, we are human, we have limitations, um, and we don't know the consequences of a change that we put into the world. And essentially, what we're doing here is we're radically changing humans' relationship, especially humans who deal with information day to day. You know, I kind of want to draw a parallel here then uh, with kind of the developments that we have had recently, you know, with the way that people reacted to computers when they were first developed, you know, trains, cars, you know, saying that the whole the fear or the the anxiety that people have around AI I think it's natural and I think it's going to go away uh, in a sense that you know uh, anytime there's a kind of a big technological revolution I feel like there's always kind of skepticism there's always that fear of what is this going to you know do to society yeah and also as well you said you were talking about uh, Sunak's motivations for holding this summit and for having his interview with Musk. But actually, we've got to look at Musk's motivations for doing it as well. Um, and ultimately, it's in his interest to make it sound as though this is going to be an extremely disruptive and influential technology because he's got a significant uh, financial stake in it. Um, so I don't know if you have any concluding remarks on that. Yeah, I mean, I just think I think that the idea that technological progress, the idea that, the, that, that this is the natural thing replacing the previous way of doing things, I don't think that's I don't think that's true at all. I think that we make we make a big assumption, a political assumption that like basically the technologies that we develop are going to change our societies, and that is something that we can't stop. So on the topic of human failures and shortcomings, I think the events across Scotland on bonfire night are a severely underreported and pretty scary reflection of the state of the UK's domestic security policy. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard about this story, which I actually imagine is quite a few of you given how little it's been covered, a series of apparently coordinated attacks across Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dundee and the East Lothian area saw a total of over 100 youths throwing petrol bombs, industrial fireworks and bricks at police and other emergency service vehicles. Um, worryingly, this is not an isolated event. Since 2018, the police operation Moonbeam has attempted to curb such bonfire night violence, but it seems that their efforts have been pretty unsuccessful and actually potentially counterproductive. Uh, the worst instance was in the Nidri area of Edinburgh, where attacks were staged by 50 youths who were supposedly coordinated and supplied with explosives by a network of adults. Um, some commentators have actually aligned this with uh, a form of child abuse. Uh, meanwhile, in Glasgow, four people, including a police officer, were hospitalised. Um, and if this wasn't concerning enough, the events came in a week where a total of 15 separate attacks were staged on emergency vehicles in Scotland. Um, I think this story is interesting for several reasons. First of all, the response from Holyrood has been remarkably toothless. Only three arrests were made, and despite verbally denouncing the offenders as thuggish and reckless, Humzi Yousaf seems to have taken very little decisive action, uh, beyond the Justice Secretary claiming to be open for discussion about banning the sale of fireworks. Um, in any case, the idea that this problem should be tackled by banning fireworks seems quite a, a, an odd way of addressing the issue at hand. 
Clearly, the event points to deep-rooted issues in the emergency services who've clearly lost control of certain members of the public. This is hardly surprising and hardly their fault. Um, they've faced significant cuts in the past couple of years and are having to cut 3.7% of their workforce this year alone. And current legislation under the SNP means that sentencing for under 25-year-olds is extremely lenient. Um, but I think this also points to a broader issue among the UK government in general, where the need to cut funding has resulted in severe compromises within the public sector. Um, it was the King's speech last week, and we heard that Sunak planning to crack down on crime in England by enforcing longer and tougher sentencing measures for serious crime. But he didn't really make any attempt to address the more pressing and arguably immediate issue of the lower end of the criminal scale. Um, it's no exaggeration to say that we're facing a shoplifting epidemic in the UK. Organised gangs routinely target high street shops and shoplifting has risen by an alarming 25% uh, in the last year and the rate of cases solved has fallen. Uh, in large part, this is due to similarly lenient prosecution, given that criminals who steal goods worth less than £200 are simply sent a fine in the post. Um, so I think that, yeah, these two issues just point to quite a worrying climate across the UK in general. And I guess I'd start by asking you guys what you think about the current state of uh, petty crime. It is a very, you know, pressing issue. And uh, I do agree that, you know, we cannot, we can never kind of, you know, accommodate everyone's needs and we cannot ever like you know raise enough money to for everyone to be happy at the same time um i do find it concerning as Rosie said that you know it's been reported that it was only the use i also think it's interesting that um like sunak obviously thinks that the the best compromise is to target uh, more serious crimes through longer prison sentences um but i just this seems to be quite out of line with what i've heard about the success of the prison system in general um from what I understand from the majority of commentators, prisons are essentially a sap on our resources. They're not particularly effective. They're not particularly well run. Um, so to seem to just rely more and more on these institutions seems like quite an uh, unproductive way of going about the issue. We know there's a prioritisation of putting like people who have just committed smaller crimes on like community services and things that aren't necessarily prison. I think I, I think that that is probably the right sort of course of policy because going in and out of prison, you're never getting out of that cycle. I think that you need essentially systems of support that are other than prisons, which I don't think the government, when it is so strapped of resources, is ever going to want to provide. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to go back to our last uh, topic of discussion, um, because obviously, well, I know that you were quite pessimistic about the applications of AI in society, but I think that AI actually could be quite useful in this instance. Um, people have talked, which I do have some ethical concerns about, about the use of um, AI in mapping shoplifters' faces effectively, um, so that once you've offended once, it's then going to be very difficult for you to enter shops without uh, being stopped effectively. Um, but where I think it might be more easy to implement and a bit less ethically difficult is just in terms of, as I mentioned, the administration tasks that AI is pretty well equipped to perform, uh, because this would effectively free up lots more police officers, I imagine, to be on the ground, stationed outside shops, um, and doing the more important human aspect rather than this computer work, which is such a sap on their resources. It reminds me of the story of like, you know, how 
AI is being used, uh, AI and face recognition is being used in China, you know, to kind of uh, monitor even, you know, regular people on the street. Uh, you know, not everywhere, but there had been stories of like such occurrences, uh, which is truly scary. But the kind of, the, the as you said, the prospect of using AI to deal with the paperwork and, um, you know, for example, maybe like noticing some trends, noticing something that is going on around you. Um, and maybe predicting such, such such attacks or predicting, you know, who might do it or like where it might happen uh, using AI technologies or AI, AI models could look very promising and very um, positive. My problem, again, on something so sensitive would be like, I mean, what happens, what happened in, I mean, sh Chicago, for example, when they did sort of like basically... Um, do something quite similar was quite famously like essentially it replicated the police biases which were often yeah. to do with to I, do as, with race. As I say, it's a moral minefield. I mean, like it's so difficult. And also, I know that these cameras because. Um, they do reflect these biases. They're then fed with more information about certain demographic groups. So then become better at identifying these particular demographic groups. So it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. So I, yeah, I I definitely agree that it's not it's not a a quick easy fix. But I do think that from the administrative side, they they could be beneficial. But, would you agree? Yeah, um, but I mean, also, I just I I think that yes, that's true. But I think that's probably like thinking about this like incorrectly i think that like just the idea that like we can make incremental efficiency improvements when the essential structure is not working i think the essential structure of policing is potentially not working um like just putting more people there i don't think that's necessarily going i don't think that's necessarily going to work like where would if you so put these so do you think that the focus should be on like education and i think focus should be on education it should be cre like creating a more cohesive like um society one that like feels more caring to people whose concerns aren't being dealt with i think that uh, like i mean i mean clearly in a situation in a situation like this like these 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 people like there's there's no there's no way for society to sort of like communicate to these people that feel themselves opposed to society i mean like i i, I think we've got to think about the ways in the, the the ways in which maybe like parts of our society don't necessarily feel like they're parts of the whole yeah i mean i think that's an admirably sort of <laughs> arcadian outlook i don't know how easy it would be to implement especially given that i think scotland is a lot more, uh, to take your phrase, caring of its population than England's government, for example. There are more welfare measures in, in place. So it would seem odd if that was the issue at hand that these attacks were specifically located in Scotland and that we didn't see a similar trend. Yeah, I mean, but I don't I don't even think that, I, th I don't think like the simple provision of a welfare benefit is necessarily care. Or, uh, I don't exactly know what the solution looks like, but I'm, I'm more like saying that there is like an essential problem with the idea of basically policing people, policing disorder and, and, um, and, and forcing people to conform. Like uh, force should be, force should be the thing that you do of last resort it should never be it should never be the thing that you're doing to implement a form of control in society it shouldn't be that like 
that you see a policeman on the block and like you fear that they're going to hurt you and therefore you're in order and you can't actually do that because i mean like what do you do what what do you do where there's no police presence because you can't have a police presence everywhere yeah no i i do agree with you and um it's not an easy fix i think if it was then hopefully they would have taken some more decisive action by now i think the uh, the relative silence that's followed these events probably shows how difficult this is to address um and how difficult it is to implement any sort of effective political policy that's not just going to be a short-term sort of uh, almost popularity stunt. So sort of taking us full circle, I guess, and looking at the ways that technology can work both for good and bad. I know, Martina, you had some thoughts about the place of LinkedIn in today's world of social media and society. Yeah, so this is a bit, a bit more on the positive side of things. I kind of wanted to talk about how LinkedIn over the 20 years, uh, you know, started out uh, from a professional professional business network and kind of became uh, the social media account where we're now oversharing and how, you know, how our um, understanding of social media and what we should put there and what, you know, um, we're producing there is changing now. Um, so LinkedIn, as a site, now has 830 million users every day, uh, which generate 8 million posts. Um, and it's kind of its revenue has been increasing every year, um, but as a, as a social network, it's changed quite drastically. Um, something that started off as a place to kind of you know have a digital CV to find jobs to find talk to recruiters uh, now could be you know even likened to the, could be um, compared even to Facebook. I want to say, um, and the reason why we've seen this change, um, you know, some people say that it um, it's changed. Uh, the change came uh, at the start of the pandemic when people uh, started missing, you know, in-person interaction with colleagues, and they turned to LinkedIn as, um, you know, to make up for what they lost, um, and that kind of blurred the boundaries of professional and personal, um, what you know, what you should keep to yourself and what you should share, um, and uh, you know, Karen. Uh, Vladek, a recruiter in Austin, Texas, she uh, um, you know, she was quite a big person on LinkedIn. Kind of uh, mentioned that uh, the site was a long hang, low hanging fruit compared to other crowded platforms like Twitter and Instagram for posting, you know, and sharing. Um, and one thing that kind of increased LinkedIn's popularity was the fact that you know we're talking about trends and trends change very often. For example, on TikTok, on Instagram, it could be days, it could be weeks. You know, there's something new every day. Whereas LinkedIn has been this stable, very easily accessible platform so that kind of became a good place for people to start sharing stuff and over you know over covid we've seen an increase of posts with personal stories you know selfies acquiring influencers people sharing the stories of you know of death of loved ones um, and a lot of them became sensations overnight and this generated traffic lots of clicks lots of clicks for linkedin which is you know great for them um and you know the company says that they've seen um an increase of 41 percent of users is sharing more and more content than they had in the same period, you know, in 2021. So we're comparing 2023 and 2021. Um, and they kind of seen an increase of influencers, um, you know, people, content creators from TikTok and YouTube, like Mr. Beast, uh, have now joined LinkedIn as well, which is surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, something that kind of was, for a platform that is 20 years old, it's very interesting to see this shift of it, you know, from a professional, professional side to this, some sort of, almost like Facebook, but not quite Instagram. Mm. Yeah, I think platform. it links into a, an interesting idea that Will raised earlier about sort of progress for the sake of progress. Yeah. Um, and I think the LinkedIn 
uh, the technology itself has sort of understood the need to just stay quite stable in what it provides for users. It's quite simplistic. It's very user friendly. But I think what has really changed, as you mentioned, particularly following working from home and the pandemic, is the way that users are using the platform. And I know that this has sort of um, superficially really boosted the popularity of the social media. Like so many more people are using it. Um, that I mean, that annual revenue exceeds $13.8 billion. Um, and allegedly 39% of LinkedIn users pay for LinkedIn premium. So I mean, they're obviously doing very well, but I just don't know whether uh, it's kind of lost as a result. It's kind of USP because I know I, for one, when I go on LinkedIn, I'm sort of exhausted by this same kind of narcissistic self-promotional attitude that is already presented to me multiple times a day on Facebook and Instagram. And I don't necessarily want to know <laughs> um, all of this information about people who I effectively connected to for business purposes. And you're not the only one as well. Um, a lot of you know users are kind of uh, expressing the same frustration. Um, you know, everyone seems to be questioning it on LinkedIn. Everyone has a story just to, to, to share. Everyone you know, is getting promotions. Uh, you know, their products are saving humanity. There's so much toxic positivity on there as well. Um, there's even now, you know, viral post generators. Uh, they're powered by Taplio. Uh, they kind of ask you what you did and what's the takeaway. And they generate, you also can choose a cringe level. And they generate a post kind of talking about like, you know, oh, I got a promotion, you know, here's a takeaway lesson. And it's it's really good. It, it, you know, it really feels like it was written by a person. Um, so kind of, you know, one could argue, like, what, what are we using this, this, this for? Like, what's the, you know, um, also like on the effect of, like, social media? Like, what are we now just, uh, you know, are all of the social networks becoming more similar and similar? Are we just, you know, moving to one network that's going to be, have everything in one place? I mean, I think... Um someone was saying that Facebook it's almost like it's like scrolling through Facebook almost like is like LinkedIn and I mean also like if you look on for example YouTube or Instagram I mean they've essentially copied the TikTok model in order to get people's attentions constantly and it feels like less and less that like there is like different forms of social media but like almost each social media platform is expanding so that it fulfills the functions that others have so youtube is not just youtube it's also youtube and tiktok and linkedin is now like linkedin and facebook and like yeah. um i just think it's it's this like relentless it's like this relentless desire for information essentially results in the homogenization of various different social medias. Yeah, but I also think that might be misleading in the case of LinkedIn's business strategy, because obviously for them, a lot of the activity on the app has been posting these kind of self-promotional, cringy stories. But I don't think that the engagement with those stories can be that high. I mean, I know personally, I just scroll completely aimlessly past all of them. I don't engage with anything really uh, beyond the most cursory glance. I know from uh, some statistical research that the average user only spends 17 minutes per month on LinkedIn, which compared to something like TikTok or Instagram is just completely different. And I'm sort of worried for them in a way that they think that this is the direction that they should be taking their business. When actually, I think the most useful thing in terms of LinkedIn is um, recruiting and trying to find jobs. Um, apparently 77% of recruiters regularly use LinkedIn, which puts it really up there against the likes of Indeed. 
Um, and I know that 122 million people received an interview through LinkedIn. Um, so I think that's really where they should be directing their resources um, and really developing this USP rather than trying to, as Will says, just morph it into another Instagram, another Facebook, which we already have. Uh, and frankly, I don't want another one. <laughs> As you've mentioned, a lot of content on LinkedIn is actually generated by AI itself, like these cringeworthy posts. And I just kind of wonder whether this sort of disinformation is going to be damaging to a network whose like whole credibility is founded on the notion that it's a sort of uh, a safe and business oriented place to uh, establish kind of integral connections. Um, and I kind of I worry about AI intervening in how people are applying for jobs. You can see a future where maybe AI would start generating people's CVs, their their posts, and then therefore applying them for specific jobs. I don't know. It just seems. It seems yeah, um, and I mean, just so, so slightly on that as well. I know that like for certain job interviews, like I mean. I can't exactly remember what the software's called called, but there is a it's like a form of software that basically um basically sort of like takes your responses as you give them and work out whether you're a good candidate or good enough to go for a human interview without ever having to seen a human. And That's I think so this works on this works the BBC the BBC hires in this way. I can't exactly remember what what it's called, but a lot of companies do it and it's especially popular in America. Um and 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 and, and you've got to ask questions of like whether that socially could because um like I think it's one of these examples of where, like, like where I was speaking to er earlier, it's just this mindless search for like economic profit, economic uh, economic incentive, um, um, where yes, maybe like maybe like for example, it is quite a boring part of the job going like going through each person, but yeah. I think it's almost one of the most necessary. It's it's probably the most necessary place for that to happen. But also I think it's interesting because as AI does improve and starts to take certain aspects of people's jobs or even entire jobs in general, I think we as humans need to sort of emphasize our human aspects and what we can bring to the table that AI can't. And I think that the way that you um, sort of measure how personable somebody is and what sort of people skills they can bring to a role is through face-to-face -face interaction. I don't think that any sort of AI model, no matter how advanced it is on LinkedIn, could replicate that effectively. Yeah, and I mean, but I, I guess the other point of that is like, well, then the personable skills become the thing that people are wanting to replicate on 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 AI and sort of technology more generally. I just think it's like when we've got to start when we start thinking about well, this is this is a part this is a an essential part of what it means to be human, and we are putting a money a money value on that. I think that there is I think there's something essentially wrong with that, and I'm not going to get too much into the AI thing because I I mean I mean I do think that people are people people do. People are are too quick to dismiss criticisms, but I I mean I do think that's an example of where where it, they they do actually um, manifest. As scary as it sounds, I understand the the whole sentiment of you know uh, the human to human interaction, but I just feel that in this case AI could be a very powerful tool to just for like the first steps. You know, for example, in your job search, um, like for example. Um, talking about how you can use your skill section in your, you know, LinkedIn. Um, a lot of like the search that's going behind there is using just, you know, 
uh, keywords, just using whatever comes up on your profile. Um, and if you don't pass those initial, you know, screens, you cannot get to like the, the the personal stage. You cannot get to the interview stage where you can show off your, you know, um, communication skills, teamwork skills, your personality. So as much as it is um, scary to think about these things, as much as it is um, kind of soul crushing in a way, I feel like it is important to consider how um, how influential how influential this is. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that we've really come to any conclusive answers for any of our stories this week, but I think all of them have raised really interesting concerns about um, the integration of humans and technology um, and how people can respond to these quite scary developments, whether it's in society or whether it's in AI or social media technology. So thank you guys for this really interesting discussion. Um, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Discourse. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time for our final episode of the semester. You have been listening to Discourse by the Saint, a student-led, discussion-based podcast hosted by Rosie Miller and edited and produced by Natalie Olofsson. Hopefully, this podcast has got you thinking about the themes of AI, policing, and the future of technology in general. If you'd like to get in touch or feature on a future episode, please email us at podcast at the saint dot scott.